It's one of the major questions of modern life. Who do I put down as my emergency contact? Another version, same idea. Who do I have on my quick dial, on my phone? Or who is the first person I call when something life-altering happens? Today on the podcast, first letters after liberation. Survivors who have just made it out alive, out of the horror, desperately wondering, fearing that they are now completely alone in the world, Many are unable to write, physically or mentally, but those who can, if they somehow get hold of a pencil, a piece of paper, who is the first person they contact? And what do they say? My dearly beloved Ned. My dear Totsi. I'll write you all about it in due time. But enough about us. And even stranger, I read your letter over and over. Nightmares have passed since we saw you depart. Even though you know what life is all about, have experienced war, But this sadism was unknown to the world. You can't understand the history of the Holocaust without also understanding people and trying to go down to individual stories. This is all about people. It's always all about people. And so hearing what people go through, every testimony is different and every letter is different. But there's still this thing that's so hard to understand what the suffering was all about, the things that they went through. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Jonathan Gall, and today we're going to hear four letters written by survivors having just been liberated, some from the death camps, others in different circumstances in various places around Europe, all wondering about loved ones, reaching out, trying to put their stories into words. Our guide, Dr. Robert Rosette, senior historian at the Institute for International Holocaust Research, Yad Vashem. And we begin with letter number one, written in October of 1945 in Brno, what is now the Czech Republic, addressed to one Ned Spindle, but unsigned, so author unknown. My dearly beloved Ned, no one who has witnessed Oshvienshim, that concentration camp, will be able to become human again in his lifetime. You will not be able to imagine it, even though you know what life is all about, have experienced war, but this sadism was unknown to the world. In March of 1942, Mom went with the transport to Theresienstadt. In April of 1942, I went with Fritz. There, we only stayed a short while with Mom. Mom went to Poland. Nadenko, we have no mother. She was gassed. The most wonderful and divine has been taken from us in such a bestial way. Further on in this letter, two pages, originally written in German, the author writes about how she and her husband Fritz were deported to Auschwitz, how Fritz was murdered there and she was taken for forced labor. She describes having her hair shaved, being given camp clothing, and the brutality of work in the camp. At one point, she was taken to a place called Kurzbach in Germany to dig trenches. And she describes, again, horrible conditions in Kurzbach where there was very little food. The work was terribly hard. There was a lot of gratuitous violence from the guards. And then near the very end, in the period we call the death marches, which really are early 45, prisoners were being taken more and more towards the interior, right? So she's on a, on a death march to the Grossrosen camp, which was a tremendous hub. And it had become a major hub of labor and for prisoners at that point. And she manages to hide at one point and is liberated by the Russians. That's what she writes about in her letter. So again, she goes on to tell her experience. 
And then she ends the letter being in Brno now in May of 1945. She poignantly expressed how desolate she felt. And she writes, The horror grabbed me, an utterly devastated city. I walked through the streets that were so dear and precious to me and cried my heart out. The parents dead. Max dead. My brothers somewhere on the globe. The friends dead. Nothing remained. Only the two small houses. Franciscans. Franciscans is the type of house we, we, don't, don't, we know. don't know. We don't know. They Do we know who Max is? Long, no. Do Not, we know if she had children? We, we were saying she went with her husband. Her husband was murdered. Well, we don't know from the letter. Right. So... We don't know, again, who wrote it even from the letter, only that she's Ned's sister. Right. She has a husband named Fritz. She has, her, her parents have been killed. She's gone through these experiences, but we don't know anything about her from the letter. At this point, our story becomes a little bit of a detective story, as Dr. Rosette and his colleagues try to look for clues, hoping to figure out exactly who wrote this unsigned letter and what happened to her after she sent it. Part of the work with these letters is being a detective because you're trying to figure out, you want to understand context because a fragment of the history of the Holocaust without context can be moving and meaningful, but then what does it really tell us? And so we have to find context. That's one of the main things we're always doing as historians and as teachers and as you know, writers or, any, or filmmakers or podcast makers, right? We're looking for context. So who was the author? That was the first question. And then... Again, what is, the, what is the background of all this catastrophe that she goes through? Who are the people she's mentioning in the letter? And then also, what happened to her? The investigation begins with the brother, Ned, who this letter was addressed to, now living in mandatory Palestine. This is Ned who, remember, donated the letter along with a violin to Yad Vashem. And thankfully, he also submitted testimony about people he knew who had died. And on one of the pages he mentioned, of course, he doesn't mention his sister because she survived, but he did give a page about Fritz. His, so, his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law. Right. So once he gave that, he says in the page that the wife is, is Sima. And so we now we know that the writer of this is his sister Sima, and Fritz's name is Raisavi, so she's Sima Raisavi. So suddenly we know who she is. So that's our author, Sima. We have a name. And now we can start to piece together the backstory, the events leading up to the writing of this letter. He explains that Sima invited the family to dinner to discuss what was going on. And she had two brothers, Ned and a brother, Michael. And she urged them to flee. And she convinced them they had to flee. And they did. They fled this area now under the Nazi control. The next closest place is over the border to Poland. And of course, this is before the war. So Poland's still a safe place to go to, right? So they fled to Krakow. Now, Ned donated a violin to Yad Vashem. He was a violinist. And it turns out that he was playing violin in the streets of Krakow. And he was probably, he was an excellent violinist. He became a, a professional musician. And he caught the attention of a British person there. We don't know who that is, but a British person invited him to the consulate and offered him a scholarship at the Royal Musical Academy in London. Wow. And Ned said, I'd love to go, but you have to bring my brother too. Michael. Right. And that's what happened. They both went to London. That's how they were so they spent saved. The, they spent the war in London. He was studying music. Now, meanwhile, Sima in and meanwhile, Brno. Sima has she, said, I'm going to stay in Brno, and I'll take care of mom. Right? She, she, she uh, realized the danger. She told her two brothers, 
Hopefully, her Get younger away. brothers. There were younger brothers. Yeah. I'll stay here with with our with Fritz and with my with and mother and and we'll take care of mom. Yeah, and and hopefully we'll be okay. Right. So again, this is this is only March of 1939, and so it's before the war. Nobody knows that the Nazis, including the Nazis themselves, are going to have something called the final solution. But she had the sense to tell her but brothers. But she had the sense to... that things are getting bad. Yeah. And you, young men, you don't have a future. You should go. So wow. that's what Seema did. She is the one behind the fact that the brothers survived, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, they had tremendous good luck that they were brought to Britain. Brought to Britain and eventually to Palestine. And eventually probably. come to Palestine. Thanks to archives and databases, people looking for their loved ones after the war, efforts by the Red Cross to help survivors, we actually can know what happened to Seema afterwards. And so we know that she fled from the death marches in February 1945. We know As that she describes in the letter. But she managed to get away, and then the Russians come along, right? And they will liberate them, and the, it'll be the end. But then what happens to her? She goes back to Brno. Back she to only Brno, finds the houses. Right. And we don't know exactly how, but by August of 1950, she's managed to reach Canada. Hmm. Again, many survivors were leaving, and they were going wherever they could go. And she managed to get into Canada. And that she had remarried, and that she had filed for reparations like so many people did. So we know something about her as well. We know her backstory. We know she survived. We know that she managed to get to Canada, that she remarried. And she, like so many survivors, then begins a new phase in their life by going somewhere far away from the scenes of all of the suffering. Wow. And we know that, that her, at least uh, her brother's survival... Uh, is, is much thanks to her. Right. She is what we say in Hebrew. We say on Friday nights, many of us say the, the very famous uh, song, Eshet Chayel, which means a woman of valor. And there's no question, this is a woman of valor. Before we move on to the other letters, it's interesting to think about some of the things you keep reading again and again in many of them. Letters are an amazing resource for anybody who wants to understand the Holocaust, and particularly letters by Jewish people, right, to help us understand from a Jewish perspective, since we don't have the same kind of documentation really as we would from the perpetrator's perspective. So this is a very important resource. Almost all of the letters... People tell about things that happened to them and the people near them. And actually what these letters are in many ways is unsolicited testimony. It's not like the very important testimony that was taken after the Holocaust by various groups, like in the American zone of, in Germany, for example, there was an attempt to gather testimony or testimony taken for the early trials in Poland and such things. There people were asked to give their testimony. This is unsolicited testimony. Robert Rosette says he sometimes thinks of these letters as a hand reaching out from under the rubble, trying to touch hope from out of despair, to feel something living after all the death. It's people reaching out. Sometimes they're reaching out to organizations, in which case they're trying to reach out in order to help establish a future for themselves. But very, very frequently they're reaching out to their family or to, or to friends who are outside of the zone where the war happened. And so I always see it like as an, a hand extending from the areas of destruction into those areas that weren't destroyed. And they're also a tremendous sign of life and a desire somehow to reach out 
and somehow regain normalcy after normalcy has been, you know, totally blown apart. But maybe the most heartbreaking thing about these letters has to do with the limitations of language. One of the things that we see very often in the letters is people either saying, I don't know how to tell you this, or I'm sorry I have to tell you this. Because they're very aware that they're imparting very difficult information. And again, sometimes they're just so sorry they're going to bring the sorrow to the people they're writing to. And sometimes they really don't have words. And psychologists like Henry Greenspan, who was one of the earliest ones to work with survivors, Uh, testimonies quite a few years ago, he's continued to do it, spoke about how hard it is to take what happened and put it in the format of a beginning, a middle, and an end, a story format. Because sometimes it just seems to defy that, and certainly finding the words to convey the experiences. And so the survivors say that very often in these letters, how hard it is for them to convey what they want to convey. Letter number two. Written in September 1944 in Konas, or Kovno, present-day Lithuania, addressed to the Leshem family of 120 Achad Ha'am Street in Tel Aviv, written in Yiddish by Hirsch Brick. My dear friends Leshem, I am alive and I am free. After three torturous years, I am back to being a man like all other men. The German bastards have murdered my entire family. Luba and Arik are no longer with me. I still hope to find them, even if I wanted to make a list of all the names of our mutual friends who have been savagely murdered, no paper could absorb the ink needed for it. I am still too exhausted for such a task. I'll write you all about it in due time. I am working now and have sufficient food to eat. I am earning money and able to get just about everything here. Please send me some clothes urgently, if it is not too complicated for you. Send my regards to Chaim Barlas, David Shore, Eliyahu Dobkin, Moshe Kleinboim, Shafer Bilavoskas, and the rest of my friends. I am eager to hug them all and just cry our hearts out. I kiss you and your children. Yours, Hirsch. To me, this is an incredibly moving letter where his expressions are so strong about the destruction that the paper couldn't absorb the ink for all of the names of the people who he knows who have been murdered. That's an amazing image, right? That the paper can't even absorb that ink and that he just doesn't have the energy now to even begin listing it all. It's so human. It's so human. And he's asking if you could send some clothes, but I don't want to bother you. Right. If you can send some clothes. I imagine for for you and your colleagues sort of studying this, you feel like a, a real person is in front of you, right? You do. And certainly when he says that all he wants to do is hug these people, and they can all just cry. Yeah. It's just such a devastating picture of loss. But still, he's talking about, but I'm living, right? And he's I'm alive and I'm free. There's all the loss, but there's still an element of hope in this. I'm living, I'm making enough money, and he's hopeful that he's going to find his wife and his son. We do know a little bit about who is in his letter, who's he's talking about. First of all, okay. who are the Leshems? Right. Why is he writing the Leshems? Well, Max or Mordechai and Yudit Leshem were activist Zionists, right, in Lithuania before the war. And already into the war, they managed to escape and come to Palestine. And they continued trying to send packages and other things to Lithuania to help people. And they were known 
to people who were involved in Zionist activity in, in Lithuania. And Liuba, who is mentioned here, again, is Hirsch's wife, and Arik is his son. It's a group of people, a community who are... Uh, um, who are Zionist activists, Zionist. right. Some of them managed to get to Palestine. Some of them, like Hirsch, right. still so, stuck so in... We're stuck in, in Kovno. So Hirsch is stuck in Kovno, writing to his fellow Zionists, who were lucky enough to make it to Palestine. When he writes this, he probably has no idea about his wife and son. Liuba and Arik are no longer with me, he writes. I still hope to find them. But here's the twist. Yes, but we do have more letters from this family. So we have another letter. Okay. And in the other letter, we'll already know that his wife and son are found. Because the, other, the next letter will be from his wife. Liuba. Liuba, later called Leah, mm-hmm. to the same friends. So, letter number three, undated also sent to the Leshem family in Tel Aviv, written by Liuba, or Leah, Brick. To my best friends, Hirsch has already written to you about everything. All that's left for me to do is to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your true friendship. Yes, my dearest, many dreadful years of horrific nightmares have passed since we saw you depart to Eretz Israel. It is impossible to relate in a letter all we have endured. Nobody will ever give us back what we have lost. An entire beautiful Jewish world has ceased to exist. You can no longer see in Lithuania a bearded Jew. Gone are our fathers and our mothers who sustained a fine and pure Jewish life upon their shoulders. A Jewish world is forever gone, and nobody in the surrounding world feels any shame. On the contrary, they still hate us, the survivors, for who we are. But enough about us. We are tragedy personified albeit we are the lucky ones. Our single hope is Eretz, with its new life, its strength, and its enthusiasm. How are your children? Did Miriam get married? And how is the handsome Dodik who resembles the Roman Caesar? Please let us know how they are doing. And you, how is your life coming along? Be well. I hope to properly repay you for your friendship. Your beloved Arik will soon turn nine. He's a fine big boy, but our constant wanderings have had a very negative effect on him. This is another reason why Eretz is my only hope. Stay well and send my regards to Miriam, Dodik, and the rest of the acquaintances. Yours, Ryuba. Again, the phrases are so so strong that you can't see a bearded Jew in the street anymore, right? And of course, in Lithuania, there were many very observant traditional Jewish men who would have had beards, and many of them dressed you know, in kaftans and other such things, and you just don't see that anymore. But I think one of the strongest things she says is that despite all this destruction, they still hate us. And I think that's such a strong thing she's saying that we all think that the Holocaust, as soon as the news comes out, should have... Destroyed anti-Semitism, right? I mean, this thing happened because of anti-Semitism, and after we know that it happened, anti-Semitism should be obliterated. But that's not what happened. And of course, today, looking at it so many years later, we do understand anti-Semitism never went away. It was always there, sometimes more overt, sometimes less overt, but it never went away. And her strong feeling that they still hate us and still we're the lucky ones because we survived. So she's saying the horror may be over. Like uh, my, my husband Hirsch said, he's, free, he's alive and he's free. We're out of the immediate danger. But she's in, she's in Kovna writing this probably. Yeah, back, she's in Kovna. Back in Kovna, she's saying, okay, the horror may be over. 
but they still hate us. They still hate us. And for her and their Zionists, as I said, Hirsch was the head of the, the Zionist office. For them, the only answer is to come to the land of Israel. That's the answer for them. Now, we know that from surveys later on taken in camps where Jews were housed as displaced persons, that the vast majority wanted to come to the land of Israel because of the policies still at the time, and it was so hard, and also because life here was so hard. Many of them ended up not going there. They ended up going wherever they had family, relatives, wherever they could go and start new lives. But the vast majority of the Jews left those lands. I mean, some remained, of course, but large, large numbers left the areas of the murder, and a great many who maybe weren't Zionists before became Zionists in the aftermath of what had happened. They wanted to come to the land of Israel. And that also, in this case, she says it so clearly that this is the only solution for us. So the family was reunited. Mother, father, and son, thankfully, miraculously alive and well, together back in Kovno, hoping to join their old friends in Tel Aviv. But there's a whole other act to their story. Liuba and the boy Arik, turns out, survived only thanks to incredible acts of kindness and courage. So Leah gave a testimony, which we have at Yad Vashem. And in her testimony, it's a testimony about a righteous among the nations, because her story is about being helped by a righteous among the nations. Hertz survived how he survives, but she and Arik survived because of help. And this is what her testimony says. In the spring of 1944 in Kovno, there was something called a children's action where the remaining children were supposed to be handed over to the Germans and they were supposed to be killed. And so there was news about this beforehand. Leah, or Luba, had studied at the university. We know that she was a teacher, a history teacher. And she had contacts with all kinds of non-Jewish people, and she turned to many of them to get help. And eventually a man named uh, Rekovicius agreed to try and help get their son out of the ghetto, Arik. And he brings them out, but... Rekovicius is a widower, a recent widower. And so he says to Luba, you also have to come. I can't deal with a child on my own. So they smuggle, we know how they smuggled him out, that they were revamping clothing and things in the ghetto, right? And they would bring out wagons full of clothing. So they hid, um, Arik was an eight-year-old child at the time in one of the bags of clothing, and they smuggled him out through the gate in the clothing. Okay, and then Rakovicius took him home, and then they managed to get Leah out. Either we don't know the exact details of how she gets out, but she gets out as well. And they were there for a while, but then after a little while, it became unsafe. He said, you have to go somewhere else. And they found another person, a very simple farmer by the name of Jonas Mazaretis. And Mazaretis was a very poor man with a farm, but he was a very warm-hearted and gentle man, and he had a very warm place in his heart for for Aaron, who he called Algirdes, which would be his, a Lithuanian name of, of calling him, right? And he says that he would take the little boy Arik out to the river to wash, and he would let them ride the horse. And he would notice how lonely Luba was, Leah. And he would say to her, don't worry, as bad as it is, someday it's going to be better. And he would say to her, see, madam, your son one day will be a great man. After it's very bad, it will be good. That's what she says in the testimony. Now here's the punchline. The boy, Arik, turns out he had a pretty special third act of his own. We know that they left Kovno, they went to Italy, and they finally made Aliyah in 1947. They moved to Haifa. We know that he worked there. He was a lawyer, and they worked there, and she was a teacher. And we know that Arik then studied, and he was a very bright kid, and he did very well. And according to Mazaratis' prediction, he became a great man because of 
We know him as Aaron Barak, the chief justice or the president of the Israeli Supreme Court. So it's wow. it's quite a story. And again, it, it's a devastating story, but it's also a story of hope where she's reaching out to her friends. It's also worth mentioning that she talks about Dudik, right? The the Leshem son. He, the handsome like uh, Julius Caesar. Yeah, he married Ben-Gurion's daughter, Ranana. Our fourth and final letter today, undated, originally written in Hebrew by Zahavit to Tzotzi. My dear Tzotzi, it's strange. When I received your letter, I didn't know what to do with it, open it, or it's something to toy with, something really joyous. And even stranger, I read your letter over and over, not because I didn't understand it, but because I got happy all over again each time. So this one, a little different. It's actually a reply letter. Tzotzi had written to Zahavit, and this is her answer. He wrote to her. He was in the Jewish brigade, which were the Jewish soldiers who had enlisted the fight along with the British. And then after the war, many of them stayed in Europe, and they were looking for survivors. And he found her in Bergen-Belsen, and he wrote to her the first letter, which is the letter she says she read forward, backwards, upside down, over and over again, because it was so joyous to read it. His letter... Reached her uh, Reached her and was uh, gave her a reason to sit down and right. write. And then she wrote to him her letter. You may not understand me, those who went through all of Germany's savageries. While we were locked up, we forgot that we are people, human beings. We were no more than numbers and we didn't matter to anyone. As long as we were strong and could work for them, things went well. After we ran out of strength, the gas was our fate. The first camp they took us to from home was Auschwitz. You must have heard about that famous camp. At the gate of the camp, they took me specifically and sent my parents and siblings to the other side, meeting the gas and the crematorium. The camp where I spent three months was the extermination camp. We had no hopes of getting out of there alive. At the last moment, it was ordered that they needed working hands in Germany. Fortunately for us, we were placed in this transport and reached Germany. Here I spent nine months in one camp until the day of our liberation. My friend, if only you knew how much more I could tell you face to face. If only you could visit me. That way we could talk lots and lots. It's good to hear about comrades who we haven't seen in years. I have to write in pencil because there is no ink in my room. I hope that you would bring Hitler to our Congress. He surely didn't think that there'd be a Jewish Congress in Bergen-Belsen in 1945. Just the same, we just lost the war. What's the difference between the camp of the past and now? Before, the camp had German overseers. Now, the camp isn't much different. It has British overseers. It's best not to speak about this issue because that way it hurts to see that there's lots of suffering even afterwards. It's impossible to become a free person. I won't write more to you because I'm very upset. Heartfelt regards, Zahavit. So this is a, a letter that was written in Bergen-Belsen in 1945. And Bergen-Belsen, of course, was a camp the Nazis had set up. It was initially meant for exchanging Jews with Germans who had been stuck abroad, and Jews who for some reason could come to Palestine. That was the main thing. And there were Jews exchanged from Bergen-Belsen, specifically Dutch Jews, but also earlier transports of Jews that had been exchanged. Bergen-Belsen, at the end of the war, however, became a place to which prisoners were dumped in great numbers, especially sick prisoners. 
And so Bergen-Belsen, in the end of the war, was a place of horrendous suffering with typhus and starvation. And, and the British liberation of Bergen-Belsen is a very significant piece of the British story about the Holocaust. And then afterwards, they set up a displaced persons camp in Bergen-Belsen. Mm-hmm. And so this is where, where she's writing about. So the, the British come in, liberate the camp, the Germans are out, there's a lot of sickness and death and suffering, but right. the, the British are, are trying to maintain some order. They're taking the camp and saying, okay, we'll use this as a temporary place. Displaced center. And about 10,000 people died in Bergen-Belsen after the liberation. Uh, under under the British. Because they were still sick. Right. Yeah, because they were still so sick. And, and she's saying, she, she describes this vividly, she's saying it's not much different. Right, because they're not free yet. They still have some overseers. It is obviously, it is different. Nobody's it, trying to actively her, kill them. Right, but for her, it feels the same. I'm not free yet. Yeah. I'm not free yet. Some more detective work now. Pretty much the only thing Robert and his team had to work with in trying to figure out the story behind this letter was that Tzotzi or Tzutzi was apparently a nickname given to Tzvi Ringler, the person who donated the letter to Yad Vashem. Other than it was signed Zahavid, we didn't know anything about who wrote this letter. We knew about Svi because Svi had given us material at Yad Vashem. We knew who he was. We had a testimony from him. We knew. But when he gave us the letter, he just said from a friend, Zavid. And he didn't know who Zavid was, and he didn't tell us who she was. So we tried to figure out, Svi's from Munkach. Do we have any information about a Zavid in Bergen-Belsen as a DP from Munkach? It's not enough to go on. We couldn't figure it out. And so after trying to figure out who Zavid could be, one of the people I work with had a conversation with Svi, who by then was well into his 90s. You decided to go back to the source. To ask Svi, maybe you know, maybe you know, maybe help you us, know. Help us piece this together. Yeah, maybe you can figure it out. And so, you know, we, we talked to him and he came up with the idea, oh, wait a minute. Um, her name was also Golda. Zavid Golda. Golda. And she was a classmate of his in the Munkach Hebrew gymnasium, right? Mm. Which is where he had studied as well. That's 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 something to, to, to work with. Right. So Tzvi was born in 1921. So if she was a classmate of his, so we had an idea about how old she might be, right? Um, and she was a classmate in the, in the gymnasium. So once we knew that, we started looking around, what do we have about this gymnasium? And we have two very fascinating things in the archives of Yad Vashem. One is a piece of film footage of people in this Hebrew school singing Hatikva in 1938. And then we also have a photograph of a lot of the young people. And on the photograph, there's a lot of people that have been identified. And one of them was Golda. And we knew then that her name was Golda, and we knew that her name from the identification of the photographs, that she's probably Golda Gluck. And so suddenly we had something to look for. Now that they had a full name and a date of birth, the researchers could scan the archives and trace her movements over the years and across the continents. Turns out Zehavit Golda was one of the survivors interviewed after the filming of Schindler's List, a project led by Steven Spielberg. 
So we know who she is. We know what happened to her. We know about Svi from his own material that he gave us. And suddenly we have a, a context to this. And so we also know that in January 1945, she ended up in Bergen-Belsen, right? As many of the of those kinds of camps were emptied out, she was ended up in Bergen-Belsen. And she mentions a, a Congress that we're going to have, the Jews. That's right. And so we know that as well, because we know that there was a Zionist Congress that happened in 1945 in Bergen-Belsen. So in when, the summer. She, when she tells him, it, she's making a joke. We thought you'd bring Hitler to the right. Congress because she knows he's he's working he's with, the, come, with the British. He's going to come to the Congress. He's hopeful. Yeah, she's and, saying you're, you're part of the British now. You guys can can capture Hitler and bring him to us for the right, Congress. Right. So wow. So she's saying, you know, how would Hitler have ever thought that Jews were going to survive and have a Zionist Congress? It's a moment, a small victory. It's a small victory, and it's and it's also very hopeful. Ultimately, she didn't come to Israel, mm-hmm. even though she was a Zionist. Um, she started studying in Heidelberg. She stayed in, stayed in Germany. And studied, but then she left in May of 1946 for New York. So that's in, really interesting. Yeah, she stayed wanted in to, Germany for a little while to but study. Maybe couldn't. But once she could find a way to go, I guess she went to New York, which is May 1946. Not so much afterwards. Mm. Had the and, opportunity. And to. ten years later, she married a man named Adelbert Smook, hmm. and they moved to New Rochelle. New York, which is one of the suburbs north of New York City. And they had two children, wow. two girls, and she passed away in 2012. All of these letters and many more you can find in the book that Robert Rosette edited together with Dr. Yael Nidam Ovieto. They titled their collection, After So Much Pain and Anguish, First Letters After Liberation. We often tend to think of liberation in terms of the sailor kissing the woman in New York City, you know, the famous iconic photograph, the war is over, right? And it's just happiness. But for survivors, the war, the end of the war meant beginning to confront the loss and transmitting it to other people. And so we call it the anguish of liberation. We call their book after so much pain and anguish because there's still a lot of pain and anguish that they went through and they still have to deal with it and somehow somehow deal with it. You can't understand the history of the Holocaust without also understanding people and trying to go down to individual stories. If you just talk about individual stories, again, what I said in the beginning, you need context. But the individual stories, this is all about people. It's always all about people. And so hearing what people go through, every testimony is different and every letter is different. But when you hear what they went through, first of all, it's, it's as much as we know, there's still this thing that's so hard to understand what the suffering was all about, the things that they went through. And the other thing is the resilience, that there is a lot of resilience. Not everybody. There are survivors who don't have resilience. We don't want to make it all a good story. But a lot of them show tremendous resilience and put their lives back together. And so that gives you a feeling that, you know, there, that something about human beings, there's, there's hope. It's not all despair. Recognize how horrible human beings can be to one another. That's part of the story. Recognize also that individuals often have tremendous resilience, put lives back together. Again, I'm not saying that everything's wonderful, and I don't, I don't like the triumphalism stories that we might hear. It's not triumphalist, but it's like a new chapter. And sometimes the new chapter has a lot of good things in it, like moving to New Rochelle and having two children after all of this. That's it for this episode of On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. 
My name is Jonathan Gall, sound editing and mixing by Dor Komet. Tova Shimanov was our producer. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Rosette, senior historian at the Institute for International Holocaust Research, Yad Vashem. Subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts for more episodes with more stories you might not have heard before. Thanks for listening. Be well. Be well.